Welcome everybody. My name is Victoria Fielding. Um, thank you for joining us today. I'm the Deputy Chair of the Australian Fabians. Welcome to this forum, which um, is the largest forum in my um, experience of the organisation. So it's great to see us um, joining and connecting um, through this socially isolated time. Um, so the Australian Fabians aim to promote greater equality of power, wealth and opportunity. And we'd love to invite you to join us if um, you haven't already to help us advance progressive ideas. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge we meet today on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, traditional custodians of the lands where Andrew Lee is situated. Um, we wish to acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and contribution to make, uh, they make to Australian life and to acknowledge all other First Nations people on whose land we um, gather today. Um, so just before we start the um, Q&A, I would like to first acknowledge that there are a lot of people going through quite a difficult time at the moment. Um, I wanna particularly um, reach out in solidarity for those on the front lines who are essential workers um, and are still um, you know, going out and facing this crisis on a daily, um, you know, hour by hour. And I'd also really like to acknowledge those who've lost employment um, or business during the crisis um, and acknowledge the stress that you are under. As well as that, I'd like to acknowledge families like mine who have children running around. Um, and when we see children on Zoom, um, we um, must acknowledge that uh, there are particular pressures and joys going on in the background as well. <laughs> so I would like to introduce to you uh, our speaker today. Our speaker, um, we're very lucky to um, have Andrew with us today. He's the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities and Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT. Um, and prior to joining Parliament in 2010, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University. So our most credentialed um, Australian politician, I believe. Um, our moderator today is Leon Cermak, who's the na um, a national board member of the Australian Fabians and was recently elected also as the national campaign coordinator for the Labor Environment Action Network. So I'm going to hand over now to Leon, who is going to um, begin the Q&A with Andrew and um, we look forward to hearing everybody's response. Thank you so much. Victoria, um, and thank you again, Andrew, for being here with us today. Um, we appreciate the, um, you giving up your time. Uh, we might launch straight into it. Um, so the very first question that was submitted a few seconds after we sent through our email was a pretty, pretty apt one as we sit here on Zoom. And that is, should internet provision be considered an essential service alongside other essential utility services such as power and water? Well, thanks, Leon, for a uh, great question. And thanks to the Fabians for uh, putting on today's conversation. Uh, I, I don't know what George Bernard Shaw would have thought about a uh, Fabians conversation conducted via Zoom, uh, but I think it's pretty fabulous that we've got 500 people who are excited and talking about a progressive future post-coronavirus. Uh, I think uh, this, these are very challenging times, as, as Victoria said. Uh, I'd pay tribute to the Ngunnawal people and acknowledge in saying that the challenges that coronavirus poses to Indigenous peoples across Australia, uh, even in an environment in which we're failing to close the gaps. Uh, we also need to, uh, need to acknowledge the uh, important work being done by frontline workers uh, and the important work that's, uh, that's going to be done in the months and weeks ahead as we move to, uh, to open up the economy uh, in conjunction with health professionals. Uh, these are really tough times. Uh, there's an opportunity for us to be 
more connected, but there's also a risk that we become more disconnected. So thank you to all of you, not only for what you're doing and thinking about ideas, uh, but also in working in your local communities to make them more connected and to help out older or more lonely people. On the question of internet access, I think it's a, it's a critical one. I wrote a report for the uh, US think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute on the digital divide uh, nearly two decades ago, uh, talking about then the question of access to devices. Uh, now access to devices is less of an issue, but access to fast broadband is more of an issue. Uh, we don't really have dial-up connections any longer, so it's a question of whether you've got the internet at home or you don't have the internet at home. And these scenes in the United States of kids huddled outside a cold school and so they could use its Wi-Fi network to submit their work uh, really do highlight the inequities that arise uh, in, a, in a digital divide. Uh, there's been some steps that have been taken both by providers and by NBN Co. Uh, but I think there's, there's a lot more that needs to be done uh, because the efficiencies that can come from uh, distance education, telehealth, which have been turbocharged by perhaps a decade, uh, need to be accompanied by measures to ensure that there's greater equity. Uh, just to give you one concrete example, uh, my electorate of Fenner is mostly Northern Canberra, but also includes uh, the Jarvis Bay Territory, uh, because the founders believe that every capital city must have a port, and so Jarvis Bay is part of the ACT. The Rec Bay community there is a, a, a disadvantaged Indigenous community uh, with its own community medical clinic. Uh, but that was closed because it's a small room that didn't uh, stack up to social distancing. Uh, instead, what's been done is there's uh, a, an internet connection that's been put in uh, with uh, telehealth facilities. And I think that's a good example of the system stepping up to recognise that we just can't assume everybody's got their own device uh, and that we do need to have those facilities in place uh, to make sure that there's that universal access that uh, there's Australians we demand. Ah, thanks. Um, we've also seen the effects of COVID thus far have uh, it's affected the entire population. It's affected older people primarily through the health risks and they are the most at risk. But we've seen a majority of the job losses and especially um, reduction in working hours and income felt by people under the age of 30, especially under the age of about 25, according to the Bureau of Statistics. Um, it, it again looks like something that's going to exacerbate intergenerational inequality. And thus far, the responses from government have been primarily centred around supporting people that are currently in full-time work and they haven't so much worked for the majority of people under the age of 30 that are casualised work. Do you think there's any changes we need to look at in the industrial relations system, which is a bit of a broad question for you, to try and ameliorate some of these issues? Absolutely. Uh, we see in, in every downturn, it's the most vulnerable that get hurt. Uh, people who are disadvantaged advantage tend to be the last hired and the first fired and that's why it's harder to discriminate when the unemployment rate goes low. Uh, so a low unemployment rate is the best way of narrowing the gender pay gap, the best way of boosting employment of people with disabilities, the best way of boosting outcomes for Indigenous Australians. Uh, I worry very much that rising unemployment uh, hurts those with the, the least skills. Uh, this Downturn is going to be different from the last one. Uh, they referred to the global financial crisis as the man session uh, because it tended to be men in construction and manufacturing who comprised the bulk of the job losses. 
this could well be a FEM session uh, because many of the service work, service jobs, the in-person occupations uh, are those that have been uh, affected most by social distancing. Uh, women are overrepresented in retail trade and accommodation, cafes and restaurant sectors, uh, which have been particularly badly hit, uh, as are young people. I didn't think there was any justification in the government uh, saying that people who'd been casuals with that particular employer for less than a year weren't eligible for JobKeeper. Uh, what that means is that a casual teacher who's been doing casual teaching for five years but has only been with her current school for 11 months is ineligible for JobKeeper. Uh, the Prime Minister's claim that you've got to draw the line somewhere uh, simply ignores the reality that many casuals who've uh, been working for less than a year uh, have lower incomes than those who've been working for more than a year. Um, there's similar education levels, as Jeff Borland has shown. Uh, so we do need to, uh, to expand that access. Long term, I think this is also going to prompt more of a conversation about uh, permanent jobs and about the importance of having more jobs which are sufficiently secure that you can pay a mortgage and raise a family uh, and that they're fragile employment uh, might suit some people for some periods of their lives, uh, but has now gotten out of hand. Uh, we took policies to the last election around uh, regulation of temporary work, for example. Uh, temp industries were designed to fill short-term gaps when they first emerged in the 1950s, uh, but now the temp sector has become massive and, and labour hire uh, doesn't provide the sense of permanency and confidence that people need in their, in their lives. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and I, I guess a good follow-on from that is that the, the same movement that brought us allowances like sick leave, annual leave, paid parental leave, and even just safe conditions at work and safety regulators is the union movement. And we've we've anecdotally seen that many of the unions across Australia are reporting a significant growth in membership numbers um, that you could say is akin to possibly some of the challenges we face around work choices, but again, during the GFC. How do you think the union movement can kind of build on this momentum and create the strength and the, the structure within the movement to ensure that we are we are resilient and able to go out there and best advocate for those that need strong protections and strong wages and conditions at work? And Sally McManus and the ACTU, I think, have handled themselves remarkably well through this crisis, working cooperatively with the government, uh, but also not resiling from the core issues that unions have campaigned for. Uh, unions have, uh, have had a, a tough generation. You go back to the early 1980s, half the workforce is in a union. Uh, now that's down to 13%, uh, not much higher, in fact, than the United States. Uh, so we need people to join unions because of what that does to boosting wages. We know a higher union rate means high, higher earnings uh, and because of what it does to the conversation around issues of, uh, of justice. Uh, unions didn't just bring us the eight-hour day, the weekend and sick leave, uh, but they also helped to save areas like Centennial Park and the, the Botanic Gardens uh, through the green bands of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, unions have spearheaded justice movements for people with disabilities, uh, for Indigenous Australians, for gay and lesbian Australians, uh, and unions will be a critical part of ensuring that we rebuild in a more egalitarian way. Uh, I don't think there needs to be a trade-off, Leon, between 
growth and equity. I think we can have both. And I think there's a whole lot of smart policies from education to competition reform uh, to industrial relations that lets us have that sweet spot where we have faster productivity growth uh, and a reduction in, in inequality. Uh, and unions have got to be a core, core part of that. So this is a great moment for unions to be reaching out, expanding their membership, just as it's a great time to join the Fabians. It's a great time to join your union. It is. <laughs> That is very, very good time to join the Fabians and to join join the union. And we've got a couple of our moderators will be posting links for how you can get involved in, in both of those, those movements and help us come through stronger and better on the other side. Um, but uh, the, the discussion about, I guess, time for transformational change is we, we've seen in Denmark and also being explored in Norway, the idea that any government bailouts will not be given to companies that domicile in offshore tax havens. So one that particularly comes to mind at the moment is the British Virgin Islands um, and others where you have corporations like Virgin Australia that are effectively an essential service for, for many Australians and employ directly about 8,000 people and indirectly about 16,000 people. Um, and there's pressure on government to directly invest in those um, do you think there is a path for possibly the nationalisation or renationalisation of some of these industries rather than handing out grants that effectively support shareholders? You've seen already in Britain uh, the uh, Tory government taking a stake in the uh, rail lines, uh, something that probably would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. Uh, and in the global financial crisis, uh, you saw the US government making a profit for US taxpayers by taking a stake in car companies and then ultimately selling that off as the car firms recovered. Uh, and that was why Labor argued that we ought to take a stake in, uh, in Virgin, uh, that it made sense from the stand standpoint of uh, the Australian flying public uh, to ensure that we didn't go to a monopoly situation. Uh, you know, you take the $1.4 billion that Virgin was asking for, divide it by the number of people who fly every year, works out to $23 per, fly, per, per flight uh, just for a single year. Uh, now, if you think that fares won't rise by 23 bucks when Qantas becomes a monopoly, I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you. Uh, the fact is that fares will probably rise by at least that much and they'd continue rising, continue staying high year on year. Uh, so if you manage to take an equity stake and then get it back afterwards, uh, you've made an investment that's uh, in the interests of, uh, of the flying public. Uh, now, you're making that in investment in a, uh, in a foreign airline, I certainly grant you, grant you that. Uh, and uh, that's, that's also would be true if you invested in Qantas, which has 40% foreign shareholders, uh, or in Rex, which the government has, uh, has, has backed in the past. Uh, but I think you do have a you do go a bridge too far when you're talking about uh, firms that are invested in tax havens. Uh, tax havens are a cancer on the global tax system. Uh, I've been uh, shocked by the way in which they've become hidey holes for uh, ill-gotten gains uh, from uh, money laundering to drug running. Uh, and we need to make sure that tax havens uh, are stamped out. Uh, in the interest of not having a race to the bottom in the company a company tax debate. Uh, I've got to say, I haven't had much sympathy for the cruise industry that's tried to, in some, some uh, places, dodge taxes by domiciling in tax havens and now discovers that uh, tax havens uh, don't have much in the way of assistance packages for, uh, for firms uh, in, the, in the downturn. Um, sorry, guys, you should have anticipated that, that one a little bit earlier. Um, so we can, we can do a lot in terms of uh, making sure we have a fairer multinational tax system as we, as we go into the rebuild. And not to mention the severe 
um, environmental impact and climate emissions associated with cruise ships and cruise ship operators and their kind of inability to meet any sort of international obligations. Um, another question, I guess a little bit around equity, but we've had an excellent question about, um, we've seen a lot of the support from Australia's big four banks and also a lot of the other smaller mortgage lenders to tend to be effectively deferral of payments. So enabling people, not giving them any reduction in interest rate or reduction in payment, but just allowing them to postpone and push out their loans, which is effectively increasing the equity stake, I guess, over time that a bank would have in an individual's mortgage. Um, this is pretty troubling and worrisome, given that we already have a pretty highly speculated housing sector. Um, do you think there is a role for government or what do you think that role is in trying to redress some of these concerns that the bailouts are in fact already just further concentrating wealth? Yeah, it's certainly a risk anytime you uh, put in place a bailout that it can exacerbate existing inequalities. And, and we've got a lot of inequality in Australia at the moment. Uh, as you well know, Leon, uh, the top fifth of Australians have 63% of the wealth, the bottom fifth have less than 1% of the wealth. Uh, and that's before coronavirus hit. Uh, but uh, any time we do industry assistance, uh, it's, it's important to have, to have a good rationale for that. Uh, the reason that the assistance is being delivered in this case through firms, not just here in Australia, but also in the Scandinavian countries and uh, New, Ze New Zealand, uh, Britain, United States, uh, is because we want to maintain that connection between employer and employee. Uh, if we break those bonds, then we essentially have to go back and, and do a whole lot of work to get the economy going again. Getting a firm to go un unsolvent uh, is a, complica a complicated task. You can, in economic jargon, you can think of the allocation of workers right across the economy as a, as a massive matching problem, uh, which isn't just a matter of scrutinising CVs. Uh, it's also a matter of uh, ensuring that, uh, that people have a good fit at their, their employer. So if we can maintain those relationships, then the downturn becomes uh, much smaller than it would otherwise be. Uh, but the banks have to do their part. Uh, I thought the Prime Minister was right to call them out for not providing those bridging loans that take, uh, take firms through to when the JobKeeper payments come. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's absolutely vital uh, that the banks, which have received uh, a substantial uh, taxpayer backing in the form of the implicit guarantee, uh, now do what, the, what they can to, uh, to assist firms. Uh, and uh, any bank that starts paying dividends this year uh, deserves uh, all the program it gets from, uh, from the Australian people. Yes, I think you might be preempting ANZ, possibly paying out dividends, which sounds like they're quite likely to do, which would be quite an amazing feat. Um, Just not the time. Had, no, no, not at all. Um, we've had a lot of questions that this is probably one of the biggest topics that is uh, occupying the minds of progressive economic thinkers at the moment, and that's around MMT and similarly or tangentially a universal basic income and what the role of MMT is, I guess, theoretically, but also how we think MMT might be perceived in the general public, um, whether if we go around talking about the um, ability for government to absolve itself of future debt payments, how that would actually be received in the general electorate. Um, so we've got a lot of questions around that, but maybe if you'd like to start with, do you think UBI and or MMT have a role to play in the COVID rebuild? Two big questions. Let me uh, do my best to Sorry. Uh, 
On uh, universal basic income, uh, when I look at the data about uh, people's uh, happiness and job loss, um, I see a, a massive uh, correlation between people losing their job and losing a lot of their sense of life satisfaction. Uh, so you have to compensate someone by much more than their wage in order to get them back to the same level of happiness they had when they had a job. Uh, and that, uh, I think, reflects what we all know in our own lives, that jobs don't just bring uh, income, they also bring a sense of meaning, dignity, purpose of, of being part of, a, of the society. And when you look at countries around the world that uh, have high universal payments and low uh, employment rates, I'm thinking particularly of the, the petro states and uh, uh, the Middle East, um, the people in those societies do not seem to be uh, have the high levels of happiness that uh, that you'd expect. Uh, so, uh, for me, it's it's very much about how do we maintain strong levels of employment through the crisis, rather than uh, giving up on the whole idea of work. Uh, I think the notion of work as having a sense of purpose, meaning, and dignity has been central to the labour movement. Uh, and will continue to be in the future uh, until we get to the point where we've got a, an artificial intelligence that can uh, outperform humans on every dimension. I think we want to focus on the, the notion of uh, how to continue to make work uh, decent and how to ensure that people are skilled for the jobs that come. So that takes you to an education agenda uh, rather than to, uh, to a UBI agenda. On modern monetary theory, I share the view of uh, mainstream progressive economists like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, uh, that this is an approach which has been tried elsewhere. It's not as though there's, there's not countries which uh, have uh, attempted to, uh, to uh, print a lot of money as a way of uh, making their way through, uh, saying, well, we don't have, to, uh, don't, don't, don't have to raise revenue in order to pay for what we want. We can just print money. Uh, and that experiment has, uh, has uniformly ended badly. Uh, whether you're looking at uh, Germany or Latin America, uh, you see examples of countries uh, which had thought they could print, their, print money as a way of getting out of the crisis uh, as discovering that they, they fall into uh, inflation problems down the track. Um, so we need to, to recognise as progressives uh, that it's important to, uh, to balance, balance the, uh, the budget over the long term uh, and that we're going to make uh, need to then be not, not uh, distracting ourselves with, uh, with the MMT, but diving boots and all into the uh, debate that's coming at us hard next year over how Australia goes about repaying debt. You know, in an advanced country sense, 30% debt to GDP is below uh, many of the OECD nations. Uh, but if the coalition's answer to that is, well, now we need to rerun the disastrous 2014 budget, we need to cut the pension, we need to uh, cut health care, uh, we need to cut back on social supports, then that will exacerbate the inequality effects of uh, coronavirus itself. Uh, so Labor needs to be in there with progressive ideas um, for steadily paying back that, uh, that debt that we've, we've appropriately accumulated uh, to deal with coronavirus. And I, get, I guess the follow on, just talking about, uh, to use lack of a better phrase, the dignity of work, um, as, as Julie Gillard spoke a lot about during her prime ministership, um, that the, the best thing we can do for people is provide employment opportunities, do you think we should look at considering a jobs guarantee program or, or something similar that is aiming towards a notion of full employment? Or do you believe that the flexibility of the labour market that recognises that there is always going to be a percentage of people outside of the workforce, either long term or bouncing transitionally in between and out? 
um, I, I guess, what do you really think about a jobs guarantee framework? Well, government can uh, subsidise the entire cost of a job. Uh, and you know, let's face it, that's what they're doing in, my, in the case of my job and uh, the jobs of uh, the many other Australians who work in the public sector. Uh, but if you want to boost employment, uh, the other way is for government to subsidise part of the cost of a job. Uh, this occurs in countries that have negative income taxes, aka wage subsidies, uh, that uh, go by various names, such as the US Earned Income Tax Credit uh, or the British uh, Working Tax Credit. Uh, and that's a model which says uh, we can target money to low-income families, uh, often targeting a little more to families with children uh, by subsidising wages at the bottom of the distri distribution. Uh, that's proved enormously effective in the United States in alleviating poverty. Uh, now, partly that's because they have such a terrible social safety net. So uh, any strong program you have uh, at, at the bottom end helps. Uh, but it's also helped in Britain, which has uh, a level of social safety net closer to ours. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a way of boosting employment uh, while not having the government take on the full cost of the job. Uh, there'll be other contexts in which we will want to uh, generate uh, government employment. Um, certainly, if you look at remote Indigenous communities where there's not a, a strong private sector, I think there's a much better case there uh, for the government stepping in and, and just uh, creating the jobs holus bolus. Well, we've got to be creative about this. Uh, you know, we need to be aiming for a lower unemployment rate. Uh, I wrote a piece la last year arguing that 5% unemployment just wasn't good enough for Australia. Uh, with then Britain, the United States, Germany and New Zealand sitting at 4%, I was saying we should go for 4% unemployment. Uh, but uh, right now, it's uh, four and five look uh, uh, fabulous by, compa by comparison. Uh, so the challenge will be to get the unemployment rate as low as we possibly can, uh, because it's the most vulnerable who miss out when unemployment's double digit. Oui sort of spinning around a little bit to another area we had a few questions about fiscal stimulus and the tradition in australia has often been that large parts of the fiscal stimulus program are geared towards infrastructure projects um two problems sometimes arising out of that one is especially in this context most of the job losses aren't actually going to be in construction and infrastructure related mm. sectors they're primarily in the services sector tourism uh, retail with retailers that are are closing down shops and we'll probably never reopen them and focus on an online presence. So there's that issue of it, it potentially not targeting the right sectors, but there's the other one of like long-term carbon accounting that like in South Australia, where I'm from, every time there is a large government federal infrastructure pledge, it usually involves the North-South Corridor, which is a giant primarily commuter somewhat freight road going through the middle of Adelaide that continues people's reliance on vehicles as a mode of transport. Do you think we need to have a look a bit at a bit more of a comprehensive fiscal stimulus package and ensure that we're spreading it around a little bit more evenly and probably with long-term carbon reduction in mind? Yeah, look, I'm so glad you asked, asked that, Leon, because I think there is that, uh, that instinct to say, well, the answer to any downturn is just to build a bunch of roads. Uh, and it's, it's certainly going to be true that this is an opportunity to do more road building and more, uh, more expansion and that there will be uh, other bits of transport infrastructure, particularly public transport and bike paths uh, that we can invest in right now. Uh, but as you say, they tend to be men's jobs. Uh, and that made much more sense in the global financial crisis when those who were losing their job uh, were disproportionately men. Uh, it makes less sense now when the hit is predominantly to the service sector. 
Uh, and we want to think uh, about investments, not just in terms of investment in stuff that you can put a ribbon on and cut, but also investment in uh, the, the, the social fabric. Uh, so when we're investing in preventive health, then effectively we're investing in the productive potential of the economy. Uh, when we're investing in uh, uh, education, in boosting uh, vocational training, which has fallen in a heap in the last decade, uh, or investing in universities, uh, then that's again investing in the productive potential of, of Australians and uh, putting, putting money into a sector where we know uh, investment pays high returns. Uh, it's absolutely crazy right now. We've got caps on university places. Uh, universities are going to be massively hit by the fall in international education next year. There'll be a lot of students who've already enrolled who won't come back. International students uh, who thought about enrolling will now study, study domestically in their, their home countries. So why not use the opportunity to take the caps off uh, and let every young Australian who wants to uh, go, go to university and who the university's judge has the smarts to get there, get a spot. Uh, that's even more important when you recognise the, the main cost of education isn't the tuition, it's the foregone earnings. Uh, the main cost of you going to university is, is the wage you, you would have gotten otherwise if you were in a full-time job. Uh, so when the labour market is crummy, uh, that's a time when the opportunity cost of education is low and government ought to be encouraging people to dive into education. Uh, we did this very well in the early 90s recession, which saw the uh, school completion rate go up and the university attendance rate go up. It was right after those Dawkins reforms. And we can do it again right now, uh, encouraging universities to not only take more students, but also to be more creative in how they deliver online learning, uh, which will probably not be pure online learning as it is right now, but, but some mix of face-to-face -face tutorials and uh, online lectures. Uh, and that's again been uh, accelerated by the, uh, the COVID crisis uh, in a way in which in long-term might, might actually turn out to be good for us. Yeah, and I guess it's exposed in the higher education sector um, regulator, the regulator or TEXA has probably doesn't actually have the tools to ensure the, the quality of education in the online system. We've had, we've got quite a few large for-profit educational institutions in Australia that get consistently poor reviews for students, um, student learning outcomes, but also in the public sector, we actually probably have had a chronic underinvestment in IT and digital infrastructure within the universities themselves. And particularly surprising when you have vice chancellors and executive teams that are often remunerated above the million dollar mark per annum. Um, do you think we need to look at additional possibly regulation of the higher education sector? Because it seems surprising to me that we would have the highest paid vice chancellor cohort in the world per university um, in a country like Australia that prides ourselves generally on an egalitarian nature. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... Uh, I'm quite an admirer of uh, the Nobel laureate Brian Schmidt, who took a uh, lower pay packet to run ANU than he was uh, he was offered, uh, and who has then set about knocking down some of the big lecture theatres at ANU, uh, including the Manning Clark lecture lecture theatre, which was uh, uh, their, uh, their their largest lecture theatre that at the time I think was on the course schedule of nearly half of all ANU students. Uh, and they did that because they just observed that students weren't going to lectures any longer. Uh, this is a couple of years back and they've 
uh, moved much more to a, a kind of blended learning model, as I noticed somebody just mentioned in the chat, uh, of, of getting uh, more of the, uh, the online lectures, but then focusing a lot of attention on face-to-face uh, -face interaction. So ensuring that students have more time to, uh, to engage uh, with academics. Um, that's something that I think uh, the liberal arts colleges in the United States have done well. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I noticed when I was studying in the States that, uh, that some of the Ivy Leagues tended to be on a model in which uh, you couldn't get near a top professor. Uh, the liberal arts colleges were much more of the principle that you had small tutorials in which, which encouraged conversation uh, and made the, made the best of, uh, of, of academics. So we've got a lot to, uh, to, to learn from that uh, as higher education steps up. Uh, and particularly uh, in a world in which what we want from our university degrees and, and our technical degrees as well uh, is a platform that allows people to continue to adapt. Uh, so you don't want to lock people into a narrow set of skills. You want to teach people how to learn and so they can continue to update their skills. Um, this isn't just theory. We see it empirically. Uh, people who uh, get too narrow a range of skills earn higher wages in their 20s but lower wages in their 50s and 60s uh, because they were perfectly fitted to the jobs just after graduation, but pretty badly able uh, fitted to the jobs 30 years on. Uh, so we need people to be adaptable and flexible uh, so that education is a kind of an insurance policy as well as an investment. And we've seen corresponding job losses at universities with the reduction in international student numbers and uh, again, I guess Australia being unable to provide the level of education online that many of our competitors are able to internationally. Um, but but mm. I mean, it's a bit of a loaded question, but do you think that there needs to be a wholesale rethink on the funding model of universities and higher education? Because we really have relied on international students and in many cases, the exploitation of international students to prop up a sector that government yeah. has removed itself from. Yeah, I mean, I think that the main issue is uh, is taking those caps off because that allows uh, more domestic students to attend university uh, and the uh, funding sustainability of universities that have relied particularly just on students coming from China is, is I think, uh, a risk that's now manifested itself for uh, those institutions. I know a lot of uh, universities have tried to, uh, to, to ensure they get students from uh, a broader range of countries and so they're not so vulnerable to uh, geopolitical and geostrategic threats. Um, not all have, uh, have succeeded to the same extent. Uh, the, uh, the higher education sector is, is absolutely critical. The more you think that uh, automation is coming to the economy. Uh, there's a lovely book by Claudia Golden and Larry Katz called The Race Between Education and Technology. Uh, and their idea is that uh, inequality is, is fundamentally a matter of how fast education is advancing relative te te to technology. Uh, so you've got periods uh, like the post-war decades uh, in which education accelerates fast, faster than technology and uh, the country, most advanced countries become more equal. And then you've got periods like the last couple of decades in which technology has outstripped education uh, and which countries have become more unequal. Uh, so this is, this is really a, a question of uh, if the robots are coming, we need a great education system to, uh, to meet them. And we haven't even gotten to, to what's happening in, in schools and the fact that now the typical year nine student scores where the typical year eight student was scoring at the turn of the century. Uh, we've seen a massive drop in the uh, uh, literacy and numeracy of Australia's teenagers 
um, partly reflected by the fact that we just haven't had strong enough incentives to attract and retain the best teachers in Australian schools. Uh, that's got to be a, a priority as well. Yeah, um, and just a note to everyone listening in today, we'll try and circulate as many of the discussion papers that Andrew I or anyone else mentions um, so that you can have a read yourself and there'll sure to be a follow-up to this. Um, we've we had a few questions as well about immigration and Australia's vulnerability that much mm. of our GDP growth, many uh, mainstream, or well, in fact, most economists have argued has come off the back of immigration, propping up GDP as new services and infrastructure is built to house new migrants to Australia. But this is likely to see, I mean, it is, there is no net immigration right now. And it's likely that this trend will continue for at least a few months, but there'll possibly be a reduction in the medium term. How do you think we go about building an economy when we have our immigration rate is falling, which is going to put the significant pressures on our domestic economy. But we've also seen like the coal futures price has gone down by about 65%. And we've already talked about international education and got a number of international indices that show Australia sitting in the, about the 60 to 70 mark for economic complexity. Andrew, what are we going to do? In the uh, degree of deglobalisation that could occur over uh, coming years. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of global engagement. Uh, I enjoy intellectually uh, reading books from overseas, watching movies from overseas. Uh, I'm uh, married to somebody who wasn't born in, born in Australia. My kids are dual citizens. Um, I'm not, just in case uh, anyone's got a uh, Section 44 case they'd like to bring. Uh, but uh, engaging with the world, I think, has been a great source of Australia's prosperity. Um, critics of migration often forget that uh, while every migrant brings a mouth to feed, they also bring two hands to build and a, a brain to inspire. Uh, and the benefits of trade for an economy like Australia's has been that it has uh, increased our prosperity, uh, increased the buying power of our consumers, uh, and has ensured that we uh, are able to specialise to a, great, a greater extent in the things that we do best. So trade is really, you know, the case for tree, free trade is, is really just the case for comparative advantage. Uh, and likewise, foreign investment, we've, we've benefited greatly from foreign investment. Uh, as you say, though, when you look at our G aggregate GDP, uh, a lot of that has just come off population growth. And uh, you can be a strong globaliser, but still think that it's a bit strange to be measuring the total size of the pie rather than the pie per person, which is really what counts if you're looking at living standards. Uh, and when you properly measure the uh, living standards per person, uh, the, the last six, seven years do not look good at all. Uh, it's been a period in which we haven't had that uh, uh, wage growth, which uh, boosts living standards and house, household incomes. Um, so I think uh, people who support globalisation like me need to be aware that uh, this crisis could well be uh, a strong spur to the nativists, to those who've always said that uh, uh, we shouldn't trust foreigners and we need to uh, shut the place down. We're seeing racist slogans pop up and my uh, uh, colleague Andrew Giles has been calling out uh, the, the uh, risk that we retreat from multiculturalism in, uh, in, in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. Um, so I think those of us who believe in openness need to continue making the case for it uh, while recognising that uh, obviously there are safety reasons why, uh, why we're not going to be letting international flights back in tomorrow. Uh, and uh, there's, there's going to be 
naturally a rebalancing of, uh, of what goes on in the world. Uh, but for a small economy that constitutes a, a fraction of 1% of the world's population, it is incredibly dangerous for us to retreat into autarky, um, particularly as, as you said before, the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity ranks us as a, a very undiversified economy. We've got a lot of our eggs in very few baskets, uh, and we need to unwind that. Uh, but until we do, uh, engaging with the world is is the is really is, is all the more important uh, for an undiversified economy to to maintain living standards. Um, and on that, we had a, a really good question from the ACT branch of the Fabians about looking at replacing either all or some of the corporate tax rate and ta tax structure with a cash flow tax that would be targeting corporate rents effectively and could potentially incentivize greater investment into more productive assets like new factories, whatever else. Do you think it is worth exploring something like a cash flow tax? Yeah, I mean, this is a proposal that's uh, put forward uh, by, well, there's, there's been various versions around. One version is just that you should tax uh, revenue rather than profit. Um, I think that's kind of problematic. Um, the best way of thinking about it is to imagine what would happen with a petrol station located next to a consulting firm. Uh, the petrol station uh, makes only a razor thin margin on every litre it sells. And so a revenue tax would drive it out of business. For the consulting firm, most of the revenue it takes in is profit. And so it would do extraordinarily well uh, out of a revenue tax. Uh, then there's more sophisticated uh, models, such as that put forward by Ross Garno and Craig Emerson. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for Ross and Craig, uh, but I think their model uh, has some challenges in terms of uh, how you work out, the calculate the deductions. And uh, uh, I suspect that there is a risk that it could be uh, gamed in a way which would end up being uh, pretty costly on the revenue base. Um, that said, I think we, we do need to think about uh, the period over which firms can depreciate their investments. Uh, and one of the things that we took to the last election was a program for, of accelerated depreciation uh, in which uh, we were going to uh, allow investments to be written off more quickly. Uh, that encourages firms to do more investment, which is pretty much exactly what you're going to want coming out of this crisis. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, corporate, corporate tax changes were enormously expensive to the US budget and don't seem to have done very much for American growth at all, mm. except for the accelerated depreciation component. Uh, there, Trump was uh, was on the on the money, uh, and uh, and getting a, getting accelerated depreciation right is an idea that's attracting a lot of attention from economists. Um, partly because it's uh, it's so much more economical than uh, a broad company tax cut uh, that goes to, uh, to to firms which are investing, as as well as just rewarding firms for investment that they'd already done. Yeah, excellent. Um, we've had many questions about high-speed rail as well, um, primarily probably Melbourne to Sydney, but also uh, bringing in Brisbane, and I would love to see a high-speed rail so people can come and experience the historic Glenelg tram and all the delights of Adelaide. Um, I know it's something Alvo has been pretty passionate about for many years. Do you think that there is a an avenue for us to fund a high-speed rail project in Australia, and if so, do you, are you familiar with the economics on potential routes without being too specific? So, uh, so I'm going to disclose something I've I've never said said before, uh, which is that I am a complete train tragic. Um, I uh, had it's a poster obvious, up on my uh, my bedroom wall of the 
Thirul Train Museum. Uh, and I remember the moment when I finally could pronounce the TH in Thirul, rushing, rushing into my mum and dad's bedroom and saying, I can say Thirul, Thirul. Uh, a couple of years later, I was catching the train to school and in, uh, in Southern to me. Um, the cost-benefit analysis on this is hard. Um, so conventional cost-benefit analyses don't capture many of the sorts of things that you would like to have in, in any sensible calculation. Uh, things like what it would do to traffic congestion in our biggest cities if we were to make regional cities uh, that effectively part of the commuter belt uh, for our large uh, productive metropolises. Things like the aggregation effects, which we know come from larger cities. Uh, bigger, bigger populations in cities drive up wages. The typical person who moves from a rural area to a city raises their wages by about 30%. Uh, uh, a finding which led uh, economist Ed Glazer to write a book called The Triumph of the City. Uh, and high-speed rail effectively expands the footprint of the city without a whole lot of those negative commuting costs that, uh, the, that you, get, you get otherwise because people can uh, uh, travel to work by train. And so I think there is great potential there. Uh, and but, but potentially also in a world of social distancing, you can be more so, uh, social distanced on a... Uh, uh, a train than you can uh, on an aeroplane. Uh, so uh, as we think about the impact on the climate uh, and uh, if we're, we're in a world in which pandemics could recur, uh, the, the case for high-speed rail is as, as strong as it's ever been. Yeah, excellent. Um, probably got time for a couple more questions. Um, another theme that's come up a lot right. is cl climate and climate change. Um, and with uh, my lean hat on at the moment, um, there's been a lot of discussion internationally with a Green New Deal and apologies for the name. I don't think there's much support in most of the progressive movements in Australia to call it a Green New Deal, but the general concept of large levels of economic stimulus targeted towards sectors that either don't emit carbon or are at least net neutral. Do you think that this is something that the Labor Party should, should take to an election in some form, some sort of rebuilding Australia in a green framework policy, or do you think that there's economic, oh, sorry, political risks associated with it? I don't think we get very far with a hair shirt approach to, uh, to, to many of the problems that we face. Uh, the, uh, the notion of approaching problems with a smile on our face and a sense of optimism is often a more effective way of campaigning uh, than to say, if you don't do this, then things will fall apart. Uh, let me be clear, I think things will fall apart if we don't uh, address climate change, but there's also great upside. Uh, there's a whole lot of jobs in uh, uh, solar, wind, uh, in moving to renewables, uh, in improving energy efficiency. Uh, as we move towards uh, electric cars, I think that's several, uh, and uh, any motor mechanic is, uh, or any, uh, any car buff, uh, is got to be pretty excited by uh, what you can do in an electric car. Uh, my dad drives an electric car and, uh, and he likes the fact that uh, it doesn't matter whose vehicle, you can almost invariably uh, accelerate away faster than them. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of upside to, uh, to uh, a, green, a greener economy. Uh, and speaking about it, in those positive terms is, uh, is, is critical. Um, yes, there are huge dangers to climate change and, and we could talk for hours about the risk of uh, sea level rise and what that could do to ocean topography of the increased uh, deaths from, uh, from heat uh, of the, uh, the dangers to Australian agriculture. Uh, but there's also 
what I like about the, the Green New Deal, folks, is, is the positive side. Now, you want to be careful with this, uh, that the Green New Deal doesn't simply become uh, direct action by another name. Uh, the, uh, the discredited Tony Abbott uh, approach, which uh, suggested that you could tackle climate change uh, simply by throwing a, a bit of money here and there. Um, so you've, you've also got, a comprehensive plan, got to have a comprehensive plan for how you reduce emissions. Um, so I think a Green New Deal is, is part of the answer, uh, but it, it doesn't give you, a, give you a full answer because long-term the problem is coming through carbon emissions and you've got to have a strategy for reducing those carbon emissions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've talked a lot about economic mechanisms today. Um, and the general premise of the Fabians is that in many circumstances is that we can use economic tools, um, tools of taxation, fiscal and monetary policy to deliver a more social and just society. But at the heart of that is the society that we're trying to create um, and valuing notions like happiness and quality of life and general social well-being as opposed to GDP and others. Um, do you think there is room for Australia to look at, I mean, there is room, but <laughs> what do you think about Australia looking at a form of model such as the New Zealand model that um, uses those sorts of inputs and goes, uh, what are we trying to achieve in a society as opposed to just economic outlook? Wellbeing budgeting uh, makes total sense. Uh, what was extraordinary when uh, Josh Frodenberg was taking a whack at Jim Chalmers over this was that his own treasury was uh, committed to well-being budgeting. Uh, it just uh, makes sense to go back to first year economics and to recognize that economics is not the science of maximizing how much money you have, but the science of maximizing well-being or happiness. Uh, and that comes a lot from social connections. So I've got a book coming out at the end of the year called Reconnected uh, with Nick Terrell, uh, in which we look at a whole lot of uh, different ways in which Australian charities and not-for-profits are bucking the trend of Australia becoming more disconnected. Uh, the, uh, the engagement uh, for things like greening Australia's singles tree, tree planting events, uh, the clever use of volunteers by Orange Sky Laundry, uh, the way in which through this crisis we've seen mutual aid groups popping up across the country and uh, uh, people who are building new social connections, using technology not as a way of, of tearing us apart, but as a way of pulling us together. And, and I noticed on the chat, uh, Peter Kenyon and Eva Cox are talking about the social, social side there. Um, they've both thought very hard about the way in which uh, we can become a more connected community. Um, Anthony Albanese said yesterday that he wanted an economy uh, which works for people, not the other way around. And that is absolutely vital to remember at a time like this, uh, that so much of what makes life enjoyable uh, isn't the, uh, the, the size of our wallet, uh, but it's the size of our friendship group. Uh, it's the, the quality of the relationships that we have. Uh, and that's why something like uh, commuting matters uh, enormously. A blowout in commuting time just, just means we end the day frazzled with, uh, with less opportunities to engage with family and friends. Um, Robert Putnam's got a book coming out at the end of this year, which brings together two strands of work that Bob's been uh, engaging on for the last couple of decades. Uh, one is uh, his work on rising inequality, uh, in, uh, in his, most famously in his book, Our Kids, uh, and another is his work on civic connectedness. And he does this lovely exercise. Just permit me a small digression. Uh, he goes through uh, Google ingrams and counts the number of times books over the last century have used the term I and the number of times they've used the term we. 
And then he builds an index of we to I, and he discovers uh, that that index uh, peaked in the 19, 1960s as egalitarianism and social connection peaked, uh, but has declined since then. Uh, so he thinks that we need to, to tie together these two notions, a more egalitarian Australia and a more civically connected Australia. Uh, and, and that for me is, is pretty exciting. Uh, the idea we might not just have a, a fairer distribution of income, uh, but also stronger civic groups, uh, a healthier, healthier democracy uh, and uh, less loneliness and more friends. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a perfect summary of, I guess, why we do what we do and why we focus on economic policy, but recognizing at the end of the day, all we are trying to do is achieve a better quality of life for all people. Um, mm. Maybe, I, I think we probably are running out of time a little bit. So perhaps a last question that has been raised multiple times, and that's about the role of public housing um, and state owned provisions for essential services. Um, but public housing, especially, Labor took a very comprehensive, um, Doug Cameron, uh, Albo and I believe yourself a little bit policy to the last election about ensuring that there was adequate investment in public housing and social and community sector housing. Um, surely this is going to be one of the ways that we pull ourselves out of the COVID crisis. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony Albanese, Jason Clare and, and I were at uh, uh, an event yesterday in Holt in the north of uh, my electorate of Fenner. Uh, talking with local builders about the contraction that they're seeing in the building sector. Um, last year, new residential construction turned down, uh, and that at a time in which we're seeing uh, house price to income ratios still much higher than they've traditionally been. I guess there's two things about the construction sector. One is that it tends to be our most cyclical sector, uh, goes, goes up in booms and down in busts. So we need to, to ensure that it's supported through this. Uh, but also that uh, the recovery from crisis shouldn't just be a matter of how do we put things back the way they were beforehand, but it ought to be a question of how do we make things better than they were. So you look at the period after World War II, um, Curtin puts together a, a white paper on full employment, uh, saying no longer should we have this these outrageous waste of human potential that represented the Depression and the, the, the decade of the 1930s. How do we build a, a society in which there's jobs for everyone who wants one? Uh, and then to give him his due, Menzies puts a huge emphasis on housing. Uh, so Australia's home ownership rate skyrockets under the coalition. It's hard to imagine now when the coalition has become the defenders of second and, th and, and third properties for landlords and uh, uh, excusing the fact that a historically high share of Australians have become renters. But back in the 1950s, uh, the Liberals really did believe in boosting home ownership. Uh, and that's, that's something we can, we can reclaim, uh, that idea that uh, we can get more housing uh, and start treating housing less as an investment good and more as a consumption good, uh, recognising that, uh, that uh, there's nothing terribly uh, productive about encouraging people to throw all of their, their assets into buying investment properties. Better that people invest in, in smart firms instead uh, and that there's just plenty of housing to go around. Uh, that, for me, is, is part of the positive vision that could come out of, uh, of uh, COVID-19. 
Um, but thank you to uh, all of those who've, uh, who've engaged. Uh, I know we got to only a small fraction of the many issues that people are, are thinking about. Shan Turnbull wrote to me a, a series of questions before this, and uh, I've seen a lot of questions pop up on the chat that I haven't had the chance to get to. Um, so people should, of course, feel free to uh, uh, drop me an email. I'm not hard to find, just uh, available at andrewlee.com. Uh, and of course, to continue to engage through the Fabians, which re really are uh, one of our, our best platforms in Australia uh, for thinking about big ideas. Um, there's going to be a lot of Tories out there next year uh, with their scorched earth vision for Australia. Uh, and unless we've got bright, progressive voices uh, engaged in uh, newspaper columns and talkback and uh, social, social media, uh, then the other side will dominate the conversation. Uh, we can't let that happen uh, because our ideas are better than theirs. Uh, and when we, uh, when, when we, when we put our, our big, bold, exciting ideas up there, uh, I think they'll prove irresistible for the Australian people. Excellent. Um, thank you. A, a brilliant summary. Um, thank you so much, Andrew, for donating your time today and to the had about 300 or thereabouts unique people joining the conversation today. Um, thank you all so much for being part of it. Um, the isolation that we're all facing right now, this sort of thing can be the, the best anecdote we've got in a way. Um, just to let you all know, we've got some really exciting events coming up that we're just in the final stages of formulating. Um, one of them will be building on an event we had here in Adelaide on gender work and wages, which is incredibly timely um, there were a few comments about the role that women play in the economy and society and how that has been consistently discounted by traditional economics and the economic structures that we have with regards to especially carers, payments and just unpaid domestic duties and others. Um, so that'll be a really exciting one. And we've also got a few other special guests coming up that we'll announce in the coming days. So if you haven't already, we're going to post a link to the Fabians join thing which we have a couple of times today so i would encourage you all to become a member now especially while it's heavily discounted and also i'd like everyone in this conversation to have a, a quick think about the two people that they're going to ask to join their union in the next two days you're going to message whether it's a family member or a friend or somebody else and you're going to say hey with everything that's going on it's incredibly important that we back each other, we work together and we work collectively and the Australian union movement is the best vehicle to do that. Do it in your own words, better than that, but thank you all so much. And thanks again, Andrew, 